bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, October 5th, 2021 podcast. Welcome back to another Tax Credit Tuesday. This week's topic is the low-income housing tax credit, the low-income housing tax credit for beginners, to be more precise. I've been looking forward to this podcast episode for a while now, because this week we get to talk about how for-profit and non-profit developers can access the low-income housing tax credit to increase the supply of affordable rental housing for low-income families. Now, for those less familiar with this federal tax incentive, the low-income housing tax credit is used by affordable housing developers to raise significant amounts of equity from tax credit investors. By raising more equity capital for a real estate development, the project or the rental units don't need as much debt financing. And this in turn allows developers to rent those units to low-income tenants at lower rents. Now, the need for affordable housing across the country is becoming an ever greater issue. In fact, the House Ways and Means Committee recently passed a bill acknowledging the need for greater resources to support financing more affordable housing. We at Novogratik have seen a growing number of developers interested in learning about the low-income housing tax credit as a way of making affordable housing developments feasible. The Long housing tax credit is one of Novogratik's key areas of expertise. Novogratik offers comprehensive tax audit valuation and consulting services to low-income housing tax credit developers, syndicators, investors, and the like. We provide consulting services from the beginning and development's planning stages to construction and lease up, to ongoing operations, to the end of the 15-year tax credit compliance period and beyond. We work with a lot of experienced low-income housing tax credit developers, but we also get many inquiries from potential newcomers to the tax credit. Today's podcast is designed to help for-profit and not-for-profit housing developers understand the low-income housing tax credit and how it can be used to achieve its ultimate purpose, financing affordable rental housing for low-income families and individuals. To that end, I've invited my partner, Jeff Nishida, from Novogratik's San Francisco office to join me in today's discussion. Jeff is a co-founder of Novogratik's Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Working Group. He's also the chairman of Novogratik's annual Tax Credit Housing Finance Conference. Jeff is a returning guest on Tax Credit Tuesday, You may remember he was on the podcast in June to discuss ways to increase the amount of low-income housing tax credit equity that a developer can raise. Since that episode aired, Jeff has received many questions from developers who are interested in using low-income housing tax credit equity for the first time. And we're going to start today's podcast with a level-setting overview of the two types of low-income housing tax credits and how developers can use the incentive to finance much-needed affordable housing. After that, we'll talk about how tax credit developers are compensated for their work, their overhead, and the risk they assume. Then we'll discuss general advice for first-time low-income housing tax credit developers, whether they have a specific property location in mind or they're still in the information gathering phase. And then we're going to close out with some action items, some initial steps that interested developers should take to get started. So as you can see, we have a lot to cover today. So if you're ready, let's get started. So, Jeff, thank you again for joining us on Cash Credit Tuesday. Hi, Mike. Uh, happy to be back, and thanks for having me again. Yes, I'm looking forward to this discussion, as I noted in the intro. So let's start with the basics. There are two types of low-income housing tax credits. There's the 9% credit, which is often referred to as the allocated credit, and there's a 4% credit, often referred to as the tax and bond or private activity bond credit. So for the benefit of our listeners that are newer to this area, please describe these two tax credits, how they work, and how they compare with each other. 
Sure. So as you touched upon, the low-income housing tax credit is a federal incentive used to promote the development of affordable housing by allocating two partnerships that promise to develop affordable housing tax credits that can be used to lower a partner's tax liability dollar for dollar. Uh, Unfortunately, developers typically can't use a lot of these tax credits, so they have to partner up with an investor who can. And these investors in turn provide equity to partnerships to help fund the building of affordable housing. Ultimately, the benefits to the investors are both the tax credits and the tax losses due to depreciation, which also help lower their tax liability. So an investor not only has to be able to use the tax credits and tax losses, but they also have to be able to kind of project that they will have a tax liability for at least, say, 10 to 12 years uh, into the future because the low-income housing tax credit is provided over a 10-year period. Once the property is placed in service and the uh, low-income tenants are occupying the units. As we mentioned, the low-income housing tax credit, or LIHTC, is a federal incentive, but the program is administered Uh, usually by a state allocating agency. And then, as you mentioned, there are two tax credits, the 9% and the 4%. 9% tax credits are allocated to each state based on population. Typically, the application process for a 9% uh, tax credit allocation is competitive. The 9% tax credit uh, is for new construction, and uh, 9% developments tend to be able to serve lower-income tenants with deeper-skewed rents uh, than, say, a 4% development. Uh, The 4% tax credit is a little different in that it comes with an allocation of tax and bonds, but in this case, um, it's the tax and bonds that are allocated based on population. And the 4% tax credits are automatically uh, provided to the project based on certain eligible costs of the development. The 4% tax credit application may or may not be competitive. It depends on your state. And the 4% tax credits can be used for the acquisition costs of existing buildings uh, in addition to new construction. So hopefully I didn't lose anyone there, but I know that a lot of new developers to the industry worry that the affordable housing, uh, that developing affordable housing can be complex. And I think uh, LIHTC developing isn't necessarily more complex than other areas uh, they work in already. It's just say, I guess, different or maybe an additional complexity. And so developers just have to be able to embrace these complexities and kind of just dive in as um, once you kind of know how to develop LIHTC, it isn't as complex anymore. And then you tend to have a lot of help from your LIHTC partners in the industry. And I've heard from clients that once you've completed your first LIHTC property, you tend to get hooked. Great. Thank you for that. I really appreciate you focusing on the complexity issue because I similarly sometimes hear the concerns about the complexity. And I always think about how, you know, the first time I bought a home, I looked at the financing documents I designed. (laughs) (laughs) They were pretty complex. (laughs) But obviously, it had been done lots and lots of times. And as a consequence, it wasn't so complex for the uh, other parties involved. And locals and tax credits are much the same way. Uh, Once you learn the process in a given state, it's not nearly as complex as it might look at at, uh, first blush. 
And then obviously, once you do work in one state, then other states have different complexities, but a lot of it is universal since it is a federal uh, incentive uh, allocated at this, as you say, generally state level. There are a few situations where it's allocated by a city or a possession, but we won't go into that level of detail. I also wanted to note for our listeners that in addition to the investors getting principally the tax credits and the tax losses, that's the major drivers for the equity investment, investors also uh, are in uh, get an interest in cash flow, operating cash flow of 10 to 20%, depending upon the uh, development. And obviously, there's usually not much in the way of operating cash flow in the early years. But you know, over time, there can be uh, you know, some small amount, some sliver of cash flow that gets developed, that gets generated by the property. And then there's also you know, a general likelihood or potential for cash residual at the end that investors have a, a small uh, interest in. Um, so those are other uh, items for uh, listeners to be aware of. And also with respect to the, the 4% credit, the credit that goes along with private activity bonds, if you win the award, as Jeff mentioned, as you mentioned, Jeff, if you win the award for the bonds, then you're automatically eligible for 4% credits. However, the state still has to underwrite the development and decide how much of those credits you're entitled to. So there, in some ways, there's a dual underwriting that's going on there. But let's, uh, that's a great overview. And I could end up going through all the details for a while, but we don't have time for that in this podcast. I'd encourage our listeners to listen to some of the other podcasts that go into some more detail in some of these various areas. And we'll put a link to some of the podcasts in today's show notes to help you with that. Um, but I, if I'm new to this, I'm listening to this podcast right now. I say, okay, uh, Mike, you mentioned that these credits allow you to raise more equity. As a consequence, you don't need as much hard debt or fixed debt financing, so you can rent the units at lower uh, uh, income, at lower rent levels to lower income families. But what percentage wise, when I think about my capital stack? which we use in the development world, think of my capital stack to finance my affordable housing development. Uh, normally in a market rate transaction, the equity you know, is a subset, the debt financing is a being substantially all of the financing or significant portion. Here, could you give a rough percentage of the equity uh, that makes of the capital stack on both a 9% transaction and a 4% and then maybe share what are some of the other sources of the financing that make up the capital stack on these types of developments? Right. So the 9% credit is also known as the 70% present value credit because in general, it provides equity for about 70% of the qualified basis of a new building. Now, that isn't necessarily 70% of your total project costs, but <clears throat> it can be based on uh, where you construct. Um, probably when it's all said and done, and depending on what state you're in and your cost of land and a few other things, um, <clears throat> equity generally provides somewhere between, and it's a pretty big range you know, from the ones that I, I took a look at, but between 55 and 80% of your total project costs. Uh, and then um, you'll need a mortgage to cover uh, another portion, maybe perhaps somewhere between 15 and 25%. And then uh, we'll also need often soft debt to fill any gaps. And you might even have a deferred developer fee as well. As for the 4% tax credit, it's known as the 30% present value credit because it generally provides for around 30% of the qualified basis of a building. 
And again, this isn't necessarily total project cost. So the range might be somewhere, say, between, I don't know, 20 and 35% of your total project costs. Uh, as we mentioned, the 4% tax rate comes with an allocation of tax and bonds. This too can be a very large portion of your stack. I've seen it as high as almost 50%. And <clears throat> these bonds typically have a lower interest rate, helping the partnership to have this higher amount of debt service. The rest of the stack is usually some sort of soft debt uh, and, again, deferred developer fees. So 4% tax credit developments are usually highly leveraged, especially compared to 9%. That's a great uh, summary, and I totally appreciate the need to have wide ranges because <laughs> all these transactions <laughs> are unique depending upon the tenant population serve, area median income levels, and the like. There's a host of factors that go in uh, to breaking out what those percentages will end up being. And once again, this is another area we could spend a lot of time on. <laughs> we don't have the time on this podcast to be able to spend it. So if, another question that I wanted you to address is, you know, for-profit and nonprofit developers you know, obviously have significant overhead that they need to cover uh, and they incur you know, notable costs developing affordable rental housing. Uh, they also take on risk. When they're building affordable rental housing, they'll certainly, you know, at a minimum, be providing guarantees on construction loans uh, during the development phase, as well as providing various guarantees and representations and the like to the tax credit investors over the term of their investment period. So there is a risk associated with development. All real estate development and all real estate operation has risk along with costs. So what are the ways in a tax credit transaction that for-profit and nonprofit developers are compensated or reimbursed for the various costs and risks that they assume. Right. So, you know, light tech uh, project life cycle, you know, most of the risk is in that beginning phase during construction. So the developers earn what we call a developer fee. It's almost always going to be earned for their work in developing the property. Um, this fee is usually a percentage of what we call eligible basis and can often be near $1 million for larger developments or even over. For a project, uh, the word eligible basis might be a little foreign to some people. So um, if we think about a project that is 100% affordable housing and doesn't have any commercial space uh, or amenities that we charge a tenant for, you can kind of think of eligible basis as equal to depreciable basis of your development. The portion of this uh, fee uh, is usually paid at closing with, uh, say, a larger portion paid once a project is placed in service. And then the remainder will be usually um, paid over the life cycle out of operating cash flow. Beyond the developer fee, a partnership usually you know, will generate some operating cash flow over the 15-year life cycle. As you kind of mentioned uh, previously, investor might take a small portion of that cash flow, but the rest usually goes to the general partner slash developer. Because these uh, are affordable housing projects, there isn't necessarily uh, a lot of cash flow, or at least obviously not as much as say a market rate development, <clears throat> but there's usually enough to fund certain amount of fees for a developer slash general partner. And then upon the end of the life cycle, as you mentioned, the limited partner will usually exit for a smaller portion of kind of the way we think about it, of the often the sales price minus debt. But you know, it really depends on what kind of developer you have, whether you have a for-profit or a nonprofit developer, because there's different ways to 
exit the partnership with the limited partner, but note that it's usually surprising to the people that we talk to that the investors aren't taking 99.99% of the back end because investors own 99.99% of the partnership. So thank you for that uh, overview. And I would just kind of expand a little bit in terms of the ongoing cash flow in terms of you know what the source is there and sort of why is the general thinking on these types of transactions is that you want to have, you're going to underwrite the development uh, to serve the lowest income families for the longest period of time uh, and having as low as rents as possible, uh, given the tenant population you're serving in the rest. So when you're sizing out the permanent debt on these developments, you'll end up with a debt coverage ratio about 1.15 to 1.2, because you want to have a little bit of cushion in terms of what your expected operating income is over the next 15 years. You want a little cushion over the amount of your hard debt that you have to pay. And it's that, that little extra cushion, that debt coverage of 15% or 20% that generates the sliver of cash flow over that 15-year period. And that's what can be used to pay for developer fees or instead of management fees and the like uh, for uh, the developer uh, slash general partner. And then that if, that if the property is in an area where area median incomes grow and all the rest, then that can increase over time and generate some residual value. But that's the, the core economics with respect to the cash flow. And it is relatively small relative to overall development costs uh, and the like. So let's uh, move on to you know, tips uh, for long-term cash credit developers. So when, when I get contacted by developers that are new to the long-term cash credit, I tend to find that they fall into one of two groups. Uh, either they have a specific property in mind that they are trying to develop as affordable housing and they want to know how to use long-term cash credits to help with that, or they're interested in developing affordable housing, but they don't have a specific location or property in mind, and they're more interested in knowing how they can help. So maybe, Jeff, you could start with, because I myself find that these two groups, my starting advice for them is a little different depending on where they're starting from. So maybe you could share with the audience uh, what your advice is to each of these groups. So maybe start with, if I come to you with a specific property in mind that I'm looking at trying to access local cash credits to develop, what's the advice you would give me? So if you already have a property in mind, um, you'll probably want to focus on understanding your state's qualified allocation plan and regulations for governing the administration of the low-income housing tax credit, which you can usually find on the web or you can go to our website for a table of links. And you're going to want to really dive deep into that qualified allocation plan to understand things like their Scoring, uh, which is kind of a, a system they use in order to decide which projects that they're going to want to fund. So they give points to projects based on different things that they want to highlight. Also, you're going to want to understand how competitive the applications are in that state and the process ultimately of what to do when you're going to apply and when to apply. So thank you for that. Now, Let's look at the other category. Say I come to you and I don't have a specific property in mind, but I'm interested in participating. Uh, what advice do you give me? So the funny thing is I just received a similar phone call and my advice was semi-similar in that you really do have to understand the priorities of your state. Uh, and the, you know, the best way you're going to see that too is also in that qualified allocation plan. And so you're really going to want to understand 
they qualify the application plan to kind of see the things that they're trying to, in some sense, hint to you what types of developments they're looking for. So you're, they're going to hopefully talk a little bit about things like transaction size, types of development, uh, other preferences that they might have, types of units that they're looking for. You're going to want to understand how a state allocates its credits, which will help you understand or know some of the answers to some of your questions. Some states will even sit down with you to get you to uh, not only introduce yourselves to them, but provide some guidance. For example, Colorado, where I'm actually traveling to in a couple of weeks to speak at their conference, they want to sit down with you to get to know you and to hear some of your ideas and throughout your development process. So that way they can help guide your project to a project that they are, I guess, more willing to fund. Yeah, those are great analysis. And it is interesting that, you know, reading the QAP, I guess, is the same for both. But I always think of the developer that has a specific project in mind that really need to go and read the QAP and think, is the 9% transaction feasible? Can I be successful? Can the development I'm envisioning be successful in a 9% competition? And or could it be successful in getting tax and bonds such that I could get the 4% credit. And if you have an existing property in mind, you might find that given how the state awards the bonds or the 9% credit, that you don't have much chance of success. In which case, you either have to say, I guess this isn't going to be a tax credit development, or you have to you know, work with the state because there is an annual process by which the quality allocation plan takes public comment and the rest. And you may need to influence the state to say, you know, you should be developing affordable housing like, <laughs> like the project that I have and uh, and see to what extent you can be persuasive with respect to the public policy benefits of your development receiving an award. Whereas if you're looking to develop in a certain area, if you but you don't have a specific property in mind, then you can either A, look at what the state is saying they want to finance and then go and build those types of properties or if you think the state should be changing the types of properties they should finance, try to influence the qualified allocation plan process. And we've done previous podcasts on the whole qualified allocation plan process and the rest. So I'd encourage listeners to go back and listen to one or two of those uh, podcasts. So let's uh, maybe bring this to a, start to close out with how to get started. <laughs> so I'm going to close by starting. So maybe for the developers that are listening to this that say, okay, I understand the benefits and reasons and the types of credits and you know, sort of how my costs are covered and how I'm compensated for this, and they're interested in moving forward, maybe you could share what the initial few steps should be in terms of how they should get started. Sure. I'd probably start with about four steps, I guess. First, seeing as you're new to LIHTC development, I think the first thing is to start by assembling the beginning of an experienced team. Many developers will start, say, by engaging us for consulting, so that way we can help them navigate this development process. Second, I think it's probably best to embrace those complexities that we've been talking about and start to educate uh, themselves about the low-income housing tax credit by starting to understand how the program works, the various compliance requirements, and the application process that we've been talking about. They can do that, uh, I guess, by registering for our conferences, including the upcoming 
Las Vegas conference, of which I am the host, and registering for our basics workshop, which is pretty much an all-day workshop going over the basics of the program. If they can't make the conference, they can register for our LightTech Basics webinar or purchase our LightTech's intro booklet. Or if they're even more adventurous, our LightTech handbook, which is known in the industry as kind of the ultimate guide to the light tech industry. Also, just note, just to interject, they can even go for a quick little video on YouTube about the <laughs> cash credits. Uh, you search Novogratic and Locals and Cash Credits, you'll find lots of resources. Uh, but go ahead and continue. Sorry to interrupt. No, no problem. That is correct. I think third, kind of once they've discovered their property or the one that they're thinking about or interested in, they're going to want to start working on a forecast. And this forecast will be used to not only analyze feasibility, but also to show to their investors and lenders. And we can definitely help a lot with that. We even have a Litex CD-ROM uh, that they can purchase uh, with a template for a forecast. And then lastly, they'll also need to assemble the rest of their LIHTC team so that they can start tackling these application hurdles. The team will include a LIHTC attorney, their contractor, a syndicator or investor, their lender, and a property management company that's experienced in LIHTC due to the various compliance rules. This will allow them to start putting together their application. And this application can take months and require an understanding of a lot of different rules for the state, including how ready are you to build your project. And all of these different uh, team members can help with these different processes. And you know, we can help by uh, helping a developer to assemble their application or even review their application. And they're also usually going to need some things like agreed upon procedures from us that take a look at perhaps their experience, what they're calling their eligible basis, uh, and some other things. And then some other ways that we can help are, for example, on our website, we have this rent and income calculator. And uh, that rent and income calculator can help a developer understand what rents they can charge in the area where their potential project is going to be and the income uh, level of their tenants. We can also help with a rental income study. And then we have a GoVal group that can do appraisals and market studies as well. Great. Thank you for that. That was a great overview. And I totally agree with those initial four steps. And I, and I would just add that, you know, initially for a new developer in the Locust and Tuscan area, you're obviously going to be relying a lot on consultants along the way. You know, some uh, new developers will actually join venture with more experienced LIHTC developers and kind of, you know, work together on a project. Um, but that's not, you know, sort of certainly not mandatory to start that way. And we do find that when we have uh, newer developers, they're going to be relying a lot more on their external advisors on the first uh, few transactions. But as they become more experienced in the development process and time more and more of the work that is outsourced to begin ends up becoming in-house. 
So that's a natural sort of evolution as experience is gained. Um, but this is all. This has been a great podcast, Jeff. I really think you've done a great job helping share some of the high points for uh, a long term task for developers might be interested in getting involved. So if you could share with our listeners, because we obviously didn't cover everything, <laughs> and everything that we talked about has a whole host of uh, nuances to it that you definitely want to be aware of. So maybe you could share your email address to our listeners so they know how to reach out to contact you. Sure. My email address is jeff.nishita, spelled J-E-F-F, period, N as in Nancy, I-S-H-I, T as in Tom, A, at novoco.com. Great. Thank you for that, Jeff. And we'll also include your email address in today's show notes, um, which can be found at www.novoco.com slash podcast. You also could probably reach Jeff if you just Google Jeff Nishida <laughs> and Novogradic long composing tax credits will probably uh, take you to Jeff. So uh, thank you for this. I really appreciate you participating me back on Tax Credit Tuesday. Please do stick around for our off mic segment that I'll begin in a few moments when I get to ask you some fun off topic questions so you can share some advice and wisdom outside of tax credits to our listeners. And to our listeners, do be sure to tune into next week's podcast. My guest will be my partner, Tom. Thomas Stagg. And we're going to discuss how a surprise announcement by the U.S. Census Bureau could affect 2023 low-income housing cash credit income and rent limits. 2023 might sound far out there, but for anyone who's developing long-term tax credit properties or operating them, uh, they will be affected by these uh, rent and income limits, absolutely all properties. And there were some surprises that you certainly want to tune in next week to hear what that surprise was and how it could affect uh, income and rent limits a couple of years out. You can be sure that you're notified of that episode, as well as each week's episode, by following or subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novaco.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe and stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tesla Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and Radio Public. So now I'm pleased to reach our off mic section where listeners get to get some additional wisdom and advice from our <laughs> podcast guests unrelated to low-income housing tax credits and other tax credits. So let's start with a question I've been asking a few guests recently, and that's a non-work-related goal that you'd like to achieve in the next 12 months, and sort of more importantly, why? <laughs> you know, I was kind of thinking about this one, and this is I, I don't know if the goal is, a, is the correct word for this, but I'd really like to be able to attend uh, a World Series game when the Giants uh, make it to the World Series. <laughs> uh, remarkably, I've never made it to a World Series game, whether it was 2010, 2012, or 2014. So I promised myself, if they when they make it this year, <laughs> I will go. Well, I like the fact that you have a goal that's completely outside of your control. <laughs> Or at least I think you think it's outside of your control. <laughs> so good to have goals like that. Um, so uh, my next question has to do with, we are getting back to conferences with in-person. Last week, we had our conference in Nashville, our Long-Visit Task Credit Conference in Nashville, which as you noted during the podcast, our next one, our next Long-Visit Task Credit Conference will be 
in Las Vegas in December, but we do have a number of other events that are coming up. And these are in-person conferences, even though we do have a live stream version as well, as not everyone is comfortable being in an in-person event. And obviously the in-person events can't handle as many people as some of our conferences historically, you know, have attracted. But with that in mind, there's going to be more, there's going to be travel again. <laughs> uh, and there has been travel again. I'm curious what your favorite travel tip is. Well, luckily I have had to travel <laughs> uh, this year and it, it was about a year and a half since I had last traveled and boy, did I forget how to be a travel warrior. For one, I let my TSA pre-check run out. So I did end up reapplying and it actually only takes uh, a couple of days for them to approve you. So although I wasn't able to use it on the way out, uh, I was able to use it on the way back. And because I wasn't TSA pre-checked anymore, uh, I had to go through the normal security line and I forgot to not only take off my shoes, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) because I had gone camping, I accidentally left my Swiss army knife in my bag. (laughs) But the the TSA agents were all (laughs) very, very uh, kind and said that this was happening all the time now, just as everybody was slowly getting back into it. And and funny enough, uh, one of our um, uh, Novies had just asked me a similar question because they were traveling to our Tennessee conference. Oh, that's a great tip about remembering TSA pre. That's a great point. Yeah, I used to and it's not as much of a travel tip anymore um, because airports have done a better job for the most part having more power outlets. Mm. I used to always travel with a power outlet splitter. Mm-hmm. And I still do just to have it in my bag right. because I would find that I'd get to the airport and I'd have a few time, a few moments beforehand. I'd want to use some power or something and any power outlet you found already was being used. (laughs) And I'd make a friend by saying, where's my splitter? Can I share the power? (laughs) And conversely, when I, when there was an open plug, I put the splitter in there and I'd make a friend because they'd ask me if they could share the power with me as well. But that's a great tip about TSA pre and, and the whole notion of, uh, you know, how you kind of forget all those little you know, secrets that you're going to have it up when you're traveling more regularly. Well, you know, with the power splitter, nowadays you also need a USB splitter uh, for when you're traveling too, because you'll need to plug certain things into your, say your laptop and your laptop only has like, uh, well, less and less I've been noticing. Yes. It has like only one or two USB outlets. So. Yes. And I've definitely gotten to where I travel with those, the, the plugs that have multiple splits, the one plug for just the, that reason. That's a great tip as well. Anyways, we won't, we won't give all of our travel tips away. We'll save <laughs> for a future uh, podcast. <laughs> so my third question that I've had fun asking uh, prior guests is a secret talent or hobby that few people know that you have. And once again, how you came to develop that skill or hobby. <laughs> well, I can't say. Let me, let me actually <laughs> modify that by saying that you're willing to share with your manager. <laughs> <laughs> you know, originally I was going to say that I used to be a not bad Hold'em player. And I do have the Novogratic Hold'em bracelet to prove it. But <laughs> then I remembered I was talking to you and I did lose to you uh, in one of the tournaments. So I didn't want to say that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I'm actually, uh, I'd, I'd say I'm actually pretty good at figuring things out. When, what I mean by that is whether it be fixing things with my hand, because I can generally understand how things work by looking at them, or say solving problems for people. For example, one time we were on a beach uh, in Oahu and a friend had lost his gold necklace and we went you know we had got walked away from the beach used the restrooms and everything else and, and got all the way to the car and he had remembered i was able to go back and find it in less than three minutes uh so kind of like solving problems or even solving puzzles and i'll say you could just ask table one and i'll just i'll leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> No, that's uh, great. I'll uh, I'll remember that next time I lose something. <laughs> I'll give you a ring. <laughs> uh, so this is great. I really appreciate you staying on for this uh, additional off mic segment and uh, sharing your thoughts on these uh, few questions. So thank you again, Jeff. Thanks, Mike. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.